Welcome to the Working Together Podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Morales, thinker, maker, doer behind Working Together, a burgeoning hub of can-do and know-how, inspired to explore who we are and how we can work together better. I'm fascinated by all the ingredients that you need to really make something happen, to really engage a system and the groups of people within it. And so, on this podcast, you'll hear a lot of stories from folks who've made interesting things happen. Their trials and tribulations, their reflections, their lessons learned, and the actionable advice that they have to share. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I did. As you can guess, I'm fascinated with what happens when you bring a diverse group of people together to solve problems. Think of the model of the work party the barn raising, the talpoot, and apply it to deliberative democratic practice, whether at work or in your community. And this is what working together is kind of all about. But what happens when you combine this barn raising sensibility with art and design? Not just the ideas and concepts and stuff of art and design, but the actual doodling and drawing part. You get a design charade. So in the 11th episode of the Working Together podcast, I have a conversation with Patrick Condon, who has over 25 years of experience in sustainable urban design, first as a professional city planner, and then as a teacher and researcher, and who also happens to have written an excellent book on the subject called Design Charades for Sustainable Communities. So, Patrick, first of all, thank you very much for... Uh, agreeing to take the time to be interviewed. Um, your work is, uh, it's very interesting stuff. And Thank you. Uh, yes, it's, it's very interesting. And the, the kind of work that you've done around design charades uh, has, has always um, been something I've, I've been curious about. Uh, and I don't really come necessarily from, a, from an architecture or design background per se, but I've always felt, um, that that notion of design charades is very, it's very broad and all encompassing as well as your work on just, uh, sustainable urban form, uh, and the writings that you do in the Thai, which, uh, I've, I've frequented a few times. Um, so thank you for agreeing to take the time. And, uh, how I usually start all of these interviews out is, um, you know, to get kind of a bit of an idea about your story and, uh, and kind of what led you to the work that you're doing now. Uh, well, the short story is that, um, I, uh, grew up in a, uh, a hard pressed town in Massachusetts, one of Massachusetts's many mill towns that uh, industry had fled so it left a lot of housing but no jobs and that led to decline particularly during the 60s 70s and 80s so during that period uh, and I was born in 1950 so my uh, formative years were in the 60s and 70s Mm. so that led to a period of my life where I got involved with people who were trying to improve the, the city uh, improved the neighborhoods, which were in decline, uh, do something about absentee landlords, do something about uh, food with a food co-op, with a, something about politics with a newspaper, 
um, something about tenants' rights with a tenants' rights organization. So I worked with a large group of people, activists, basically community activists, for a number of years, two mm-hmm. or three years, when I was in my 20s. And while I was doing that, I got involved in my, my piece of the pie, puzzle, uh, was to work with neighborhood people to build a neighborhood park. And up to that point, up to that point I really hadn't thought about design as a career. Hmm. It was through social activism that I became interested in the positive benefits, potentially, of public space, essentially. And uh, working with people in a disadvantaged area of the city, we built a park uh, to try to correct that. So long story short, that got me interested in landscape architecture, which is what I studied in uh, the University of Massachusetts later on in life, a few years later. And subsequent to that, I became a city planner also in Massachusetts, where my interest in the public realm had a broader, a bigger canvas to work on. Hmm. So downtown restoration, uh, walkability, Things that became more or less associated with the ideas of new urbanism, walkable mm-hmm. neighborhoods, community, commerce, um, uh, affection for the street and public spaces, those kinds of things were my bread and butter in that job. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I became uh, interested in taking that as a basis for an academic career, so I worked. I sought and received a job offer at the University of Minnesota, where I worked for seven years, uh, working on these same urban issues in my uh, in my research, largely. And then eventually uh, sought another job, and that was a job in Vancouver that came up that really attracted my attention. Hmm. Vancouver, I didn't know much about, but I soon learned that it was a place that was really at the vanguard of a lot of urban thinking, and not just urban thinking, but also urban doing. So, you know, downtown residential was rare back in uh, 1992 when I arrived, but it had already been commonplace, and in fact, it was part of a long tradition here in Vancouver, so I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. And the Coal Harbor and the uh, Yale Town developments were just getting off the ground then. So it was a very fertile time to come uh, uh, to Vancouver mm-hmm. as that was kind of the launching of what came to be known as uh, Vancouverism. And, and in those the days, livable it was city a idea. livable city, walkable city, mm-hmm. downtown, uh, not sprawling, but concentrated. Uh, a city that uh, celebrated urban living and actually expanded urban living in the form of uh, higher density housing mm-hmm. and, compre- and creating, at least in the downtown, a very complete community of jobs and housing and recreational spaces. The, the role of the public realm should not be underemphasized because uh, key to that idea of Vancouverism in those days certainly was that, yes, you have high rises, but also equip those areas with uh, equip those areas lavishly with open space amenities mm-hmm. to uh, create a good environment, uh, an environment good enough to actually consider having kids there as well mm-hmm. as uh, just singles. So that's that was very interesting breakthrough. And of course, we have to remember that back in those days, uh, the uh, the condos down there were going for less than $300,000. So it was very much a middle-class area when it was first going up. Now they're like a million dollars and a million and mm-hmm. a half dollars. And uh, 
the cost per square foot is roughly four or five times what it was back in those days. It's very, <laughs> it's very, very impossible. Very different now, yes. It's, it's incredibly different now, mm-hmm. but uh, it's amazing how much things have changed because it's gone up in price five times, four to five times per square foot, and uh, average family wage has not gone up hardly at all. So mm-hmm. it's a different world. But uh, I write about that uh, to some extent in the Tai and other places and try to engage the city in making better decisions. So that's that's my story. Okay. And so the work that uh, that you did, you mentioned that you, you kind of went from the community activism side of things um, and then took a degree in landscape planning and then found yourself working as a planner in a city. Right. Um, and, and what, you know, what, from your experience, what was different about that, that work where you're kind of doing the, doing the job of planning versus when you were lady, later kind of teaching what planning was all about? What, what kind of differences did you notice between those two worlds, the academic world and then I guess the world of, you know, pragmatic practice. Yeah, well, as you suggest, there couldn't be more different. Uh, academics don't actually have to get anything done except talk about it and uh, work with their students to be uh, slightly cynical. Whereas uh, planning in a planning office, particularly if you're the head planner in a small city, which is what I was, you're right in the center of a lot of political issues and economic issues and uh uh, it was, I was only, uh, 30 years old at the time. So, which seems like I was a baby. So it was a trial by fire, understanding how to manage political issues, economic issues, the complaints and aspirations of citizens mm-hmm. working with policy to make positive changes in the public realm, uh, in a, in a city over time, uh, was very much a hands-on and, um, uh, and and a job where you had to get it done mm-hmm. or you would not last very long. Uh, so uh, on the other hand, in my academic career, I've not been a purely, I have not been a pure scholar, that's for sure. Because when I came, given my original interest in this from, uh, from public activism and then being a hands-on planner, it was not something I wanted to do, uh, just being a pure scholar was not something I wanted to do, really. Mm. I was much more attracted to using my, using public engagement as a means of scholarship or as my scholastic contribution. You know, when you're in faculty, you have to do some, some scholarly contributions which are assessed, and uh, if you don't do them well, you don't get a promotion, and you don't get tenure, and you have to leave the profession. So I had to figure out a way to... to meet those benchmarks required by the university, but I didn't really want to do it with just a series of articles, which would be read by five or six people. Mm -hmm. I preferred to do it in a way that I was engaged with the community and uh, engagement with the community was what my scholarship was about. So I could write about those activities and popularize that methodology Mm. uh, and, uh, and lay claim to that as my scholarship, which is what I did. So that's why we did the, eventually a series of design charrettes all over uh, not just this region, but uh, North America and Australia uh, included uh, over time. And that worked. That worked for me. Yeah. I had a pretty well, satisfying a, career. It's a great way around that, um, 
that requirement, I guess, as you call it, right? To have to meet these benchmarks, these kind of academic, um, you know, measures of success, I guess, like that you've published X amount of papers and that, you know what I mean? Um, But to do it in a way that extends beyond just the audience of a small cohort of experts from around the world, right? Um, That's and, right. and begin kind of speaking and engaging more with, with a wider group of folks. So that is that basically where the kernel of your work around the design charades began? Yeah, that's, exa- that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. That was uh, um, a solution that was appropriate and specific to me. Not to take away from anybody who does, you know, historical research and so forth and goes to peer, peer-dominated conferences and gets peer review from uh, from them to assess your credibility. There's nothing wrong with that, but it just wasn't for me. And uh, I'm glad I found this other avenue with the design charrettes. Yeah, no, and it's it's. Um, I think there's there's quite a few academics who are, I guess, using their position in in different ways, right? And and trying to break outside of the mold of just the peer group. Um, uh, you know, conference-oriented style of academic research and scholarship. Another one I'm thinking of is Bent Fliveberg. I don't know if I'm saying his last name right, but he did a, a book back in the early 90s, I think, called, uh, I'm, I might get the title wrong, but I think it was Planning and Rationality or something like this. But all of his research for that book was based around uh, around actual kind of engagement efforts he had done in in the city that he was doing his studies in at the time right and so the whole you know the whole uh the whole book is just kind of filled with this rich texture and history around i guess as you would call it these you know political and economic issues that need to be dealt with in the moment you know there is no you can't really put them off they're they're kind of demanding your attention for one reason or another. Um, okay. And I, th- I think the, the benefit of having academics turning their minds toward that kind of stuff is that, uh, you know, you have, you have all of this research capacity behind you to come at the issues, um, some of which are complex, and you're not going to get, you know, too much more from adding more proof and more information and more data around things. But you get a you you do uh, enrich, I guess, the conversation around around some of these issues if you have people who have that capacity to come in and do the research and do the thinking and do the work around it, and all who also have, you know, students and interns and things like this who can help out with that. So that's yeah. that's me, like on my soapbox of, <laughs> you know, it'd be great to have, um, you know, uh, academics being more. Um, I guess civically engaged, to put it one way or another, in their in their yeah. communities, right? Yeah, it would be good. And to be fair, the university gives a fair amount of credit for that. Uh, so, not uh, certainly not prohibited. It's encouraged, uh, and I agree that it's good when uh, academics can do that because they're uh, in part paid to serve their community, not just through teaching and and research to a small area, but also to provide uh, service. And uh, three three measures of academic productivity are teaching, research, and service. So hmm. service is, uh, is a key one that you have to, uh, you have to show 
significant achievements in, in order to be promoted and retained. So, uh, yeah, I mean, academic life is actually something I'm uh, forever grateful for. You know, I chafe at the constraints of uh, a large bureaucratic institution like the University of British Columbia until I realize that uh, I'm reasonably well paid for doing exactly what I want to do, and that's quite a luxury. Mm-hmm. And so also, I really like that. Yeah, and and the I guess the tenure as well is is a I think a significant um, uh, thing that we that we overlook sometimes when we think about tenureship. Uh, I don't even know if that's the right term for it, but it's one of the few stations I think in our modern society where, um, you know, your code of conduct in that position isn't, uh, isn't ham. You're not hamstrung basically by it, right? Like if you work in a corporation or a government body or something like this, you can't necessarily speak out on the area that you're, spending a lot of your time working on because then it, it, you know, that, that kind of boundary between your um, neutrality and your kind of civic activism gets blurred and people begin to question, well, you know, you know so much about this because you work for X company or whatever. Right. You know, and, and then the company is breathing down your neck saying, why are you out there sharing these things that you're, you know, that you're working on every day. Right. But in the university, yeah. you have this other situation where the work that you're doing and the work that you're researching can actually contribute also to the public conversation around many of the important things that I think your work is trying to get at, right? Um, so just to you know put, put it in grand kind of flashing lights, it's all about sustainable urban form and sustainable urban design, right? Right. And that is... I mean, is, your point... Go ahead. Oh, no, no, you go ahead. Your point about uh, people not being able to talk is well chosen. For example, there's, you know, literally thousands or uh, in the low thousands of uh, people who work for the city of Vancouver in one capacity or another, but yet none of them can speak, certainly many hundreds. None of them can really speak. So people in the planning department or engineering department or in the economic branches Nobody can speak. Meanwhile, the city has 30 paid communications mm-hmm. staff whose job, it often seems, is to prevent communication. In other words, the, <laughs> what comes out of the communication staff is often so so uh, watered down and pablum that you're really not getting any any real content from it. Right. So it takes it takes you know the only the only real substantial information you ever get is from journalism about what's going on in the city unless you're deeply embedded. So it is kind of a weird situation of people who know a lot, mm-hmm. particularly in the planning department. You know, you would think planners, their whole job would be to, to speak, but unfortunately they're constrained by the, by the political constraints of the bureaucratic institution that they're in. And, uh, and uh, you know, their, their statements have to be vetted and uh, completely sanitized before they're able to speak. And I've seen that happen at many public meetings here in the city and elsewhere. And I was a, I was a victim of it, you know, to some extent, to the large extent, when I was a planner myself. There was things I couldn't, I couldn't say without incurring the wrath of, you know, the elected officials who were ultimately my supervisors. So that's, 
that's the way of the world out there for 95% of the people. But, uh, yeah, academics have a great luxury of being not just allowed but encouraged to uh, to speak uh, out as a, from the basis of academic freedom, but the principle being that academic freedom has benefits to society because if you're protected against repercussions, then you're more free to speak the truth to power or whatever it is that uh, needs to be said. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a very luxurious but also a, a significant responsibility to have, which I very much honor and appreciate. And I, I, I'm sure my colleagues do too. Uh, you know, it, but However, it is kind of surprising that my colleagues don't take as much advantage of that in many cases as perhaps they can or should. Given that luxury, and given the ra- given how rare that luxury is, that that level of protection, mm-hmm. it is a bit surprising that we don't have uh, a higher number of uh, people doing it. There are some, though. There are a number of university faculty at UBC who do, but they're a pretty small minority. It's not. It's also not without its consequences. Like I've spoken out barely. The only word is. Uh, the only word that's occurring to me is stridently. I've spoken out stridently, or maybe mm-hmm. just clearly or forcefully, uh, <clears throat> both for and against things in our region and in our city of Vancouver, and taking particular individuals even to task, you know, calling the mayor by name and saying, this is wrong, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, uh, the protection of academic freedom is meant that even when I contradicted things that the president of the university was saying at the time and uh, in uh, in concert with the mayor, particularly around the issue of the Broadway subway, right. uh, which the president of the university and the mayor both support, of course, uh, my opposition was uh, not welcome by the university, but not constrained. Mm-hmm. So... So there is some blowback, but uh, anyway, largely unprotected. Yeah, and I, you know, I think it allows, it, like you're saying, it does allow you to um, apply your expertise and your your background and the and the work right. that you do around um, around you know kind of design charades and um, you know sustainable planning and the engagement process around that. You right. can you can apply it directly, and I think with other academics the it's really it just comes down to that initial choice of where they're researching right and right i mean a history professor choices. or yeah. a psychology professor probably doesn't feel that they have much to say about whether or not the broadway subway is a good idea exactly from their from their professional credential basis no i understand that you're right but but nonetheless so i think you know i think uh i think this is an interesting thing that I'm glad we talked a little bit about because it is it is uh it is quite a different world to move from kind of within a, a bureaucracy or within an organization where you have a certain uh public service duty so to speak through your role into another right. organization where you have a different kind of public service duty role and I think when you're thinking about um kind of designing interactions between multiple stakeholders Uh, And you're thinking about the kind of um, lead agents within that process. You need to, you need to kind of map this out. Right. And I'm wondering, maybe you could, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, your role in, in a design tray, like how, 
how you go about setting one of those up. Uh, so that's kind of one element of it. But then the, the first element, before we get into that, um, I would I would ask you to just kind of define what a design charade is for my listeners and kind of talk a little bit about, you know, what what it is, you know, why why we do it, why we would want to do it, where it would be appropriate to do it. That cor- do you do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. And uh, I'm uh, I'm asked often to define a design charade. Uh, and my answer is that it's when you ask a bunch of people uh, who don't really uh, like each other very much uh, to work on an impossibly complex problem and to do it all <laughs> in a ridiculously short amount of time. That's what a design charade is. And uh, it kind of gets to the point. Uh, which is the larger point. The larger point is, if I could wax philosophical here for a minute about methodology, uh, the larger point is that the problems that we have today in our world are increasingly complex. They're Mm -hmm. called wicked wicked problems Mm -hmm. because they don't really have uh, one solution. They never have one solution. They have a myriad of directions that you can go in in response to them. Many of them wrong, uh, fewer of them right, and it's very difficult to anticipate in advance which uh, is the best solution. It's certainly they're so complex that it's not really possible to use data or linear methodologies mm-hmm. or you know pure reason or uh, professional expertise to tell you what to do because they're so complicated and. Mm-hmm. Their complexity is often having to do with how it's not a singular problem in the first place. Uh, It's rare, and the Broadway subway is a good example, it's rare that a transportation is only a transportation problem. Mm -hmm. Transportation problems are usually city-building problems or cultural problems or regional development problems Mm -hmm. or global sustainability problems or uh, or the quality of public realm problems, all those things uh, are also included. So it's not a, it's never a question. Transportation issues, for example, are never a question of getting from point A to point B. They're much, much bigger than that. <clears throat> However, unfortunately for us, we tend to treat them as if they're a problem of getting from point A to point B because mm-hmm. that's that's our custom in this culture, in our Western culture for sure. Uh, most of our successes as a Western culture are a consequence of using these linear methodologies and solving uh, linear problems. You know, and it's a great way to get somebody to the moon and back or to invent the atomic bomb, but it's a really bad way to build a city, uh, thinking about these issues as one-at-a-time one problems. Mm-hmm. So the, the dysfunctions of the, um, the North American city can largely be ascribed to one-at-a-time thinking. So if you look at most cities, our, our city only uh, uh, somewhat accepted uh, the, the solution to the problem of getting people around by car was to build a whole bunch of freeways. And an unanticipated consequence of that was sprawl and congestion mm-hmm. and air pollution and additional costs to the family that became in time unsupportable and an entire system that was utterly lacking in resilience because you had so committed to this one transportation strategy that we're now stuck with. So 
you know, to kind of, to kind of conclude this thought, if you accept that uh, these problems are multivariate rather than one or two variables, mm-hmm. they are multivariate, they have thousands of variables, you have to also admit that your linear methodologies are depending too much on one person's expertise or a pile of studies that you pay an enormous amount of money for mm-hmm. <clears throat> that similarly are only narrow pieces of the problem. You have to find a whole different methodology. So that whole different methodology is to bring people together and say, look, here's a wicked problem, uh, and we depend on you uh, because you know stuff, uh, but we want to come up with a collective answer. We admit that we're not going to be able to come up with a perfect answer, but we suspect that by all of us working together, we'll come up with a good answer, an answer that's better than these these supposed answers from these specialty areas that have been proven not to work. Mm -hmm. We expect that by working at this table for a while, uh, we can come up with a better answer than that. And it operates on the faith in human capacity, uh, partly informed by the intuitive dynamic of collaboration, Mm -hmm. to come up with a good solution. Uh, And it's not going to be a solution that you're going to be able to prove is perfect. But the consensus conclusion that it's a good conclusion and we should proceed forward from it is what it is what a charrette produces at the end of whatever period of time you've given this problem to be solved. The hope is, and it's always worked out for me, it's never failed, the hope is that the collective will come up with a consensus solution that they will say, yes, I have confidence that this is the right thing to do. I may not be completely sure of every aspect of it. There may be parts of it that I don't like. But in general, I can support the collective conclusion that this is the right way to go. And that's the way we did it with the East Clayton Project, which is the oldest and most substantial project in the region uh, that got built out so Mm -hmm. that we can now actually look at the results of it. That was the way it was done then, and that's the way it's been done subsequently. So it does prove out that you can actually get things Mm -hmm. done in the complex milieu of city of city development mm-hmm. so that's why it's a recommended strategy and that's why i think it works and so you mentioned there's this element of kind of the you know the wicked problem is actually i really like how you um how you characterize this it's really just a it's a series of multivariant problems right, right? that are right. all mixed together um right. And so the linear methodologies that we have from the past aren't really going to, they're not going to work so well in that space. Um, And so when, you know, when you're part of a charade, I've only, I've only been a part of one charade myself. Um, So Uh as, as, as somebody who's usually kind of setting up and running charades, what kind like, how are, how are people feeling when, (laughs) when they're bumping into that space and what kind of set of tools do you have to be using to help, um, I guess, transition them out of that mm-hmm. desire for proof and certainty? You know what I mean? Because so, yeah. so many kind of public engagement meetings, the thing that you hear in, the, in kind of the first few sessions of it, uh, like people want to hear the facts and the numbers before they make their decision, right? But as it, as they usually go on, it's like, well, this is kind of complicated. So you start to have to go down into values and, you know, and into 
feelings about things, right? And intuition, right? So how do you kind of help the room manage that transition, I guess, from the desire for fact to this other space? Yeah, there's a couple of different tracks, uh, answer tracks for this one. But the first one is a simple one, and I think it's illustrative of the way I've come to think, and uh, it's a fairly clear explanation. Uh, First is to say that you need to have a period of time that's sufficient for people to move through the stages of their relationship with each other. So one of our slogans is it takes at least three days to go from the status of stakeholder to team member. Hmm. It, It takes a certain amount of time to do that. And that's because there's, <clears throat> there is a fundamental human condition, which you see played out in public meetings all the time. Public meeting, you know, starts at 7 and ends at 11. And in between 7 and 11, people come in and they scream and yell. And then they leave and they feel good about their screaming and yelling. And sometimes that's effective and sometimes it's not. It certainly doesn't lead to a creative solution, but that's Typically, our public process is dominated by that kind of thing where stakeholders come in and present the positions of their stake, whatever stake they have, whether mm-hmm. they're a neighbor or a developer or whatever, <clears throat> the fire chief guy or whatever. Um, so that doesn't work. Uh, and if you could figure out a way for a stakeholder to come in and spend time together with other stakeholders who have opposing positions or different positions or look at the problem differently, mm-hmm. that would be helpful. And what we find is it really takes two and a half to three days for that transformation to occur. A story I tell is that we had uh, the East Clayton Charette, which was a long time ago now, but there was a lot of interesting pieces to it that I still remember. Uh, we had the developer on one side of the table, literally, and the, the neighborhood person on the other side of the table, you know, arguing we shouldn't have this density and we shouldn't do this and we shouldn't do that. The neighborhood is fine the way it is kind of thing, which is mm. often the case. But the developer <laughs> but the developer was there, you know, after the during the second day of this conversation expressing his his position and his position included this fact. He included the fact that he was new on the job and it was very important to him to get this project through. And that what was at stake for him was the preservation of his family income he didn't say it exactly that way but he mm-hmm. got he got the point across and it wasn't in genuine there was nothing cynical about it mm-hmm. this was a very real moment and you could kind of and there was a silence at the end of that a short silence at the end and you could kind of look around the room and say, um, judge by people's reaction it was like whoa that was that was intense mm-hmm. and, and it was at that moment that people started treating him uh and then later on each other as human beings with a with a common set of, with a somewhat common set of problems or issues that everybody had a stake a different stake that was personal and real and important in this uh, in this, this these sets of decisions and it wasn't just an inhuman developer type coming in and wanting to grab all the money that was on the table and run off to Cancun mm-hmm. which is you know what people perceive developers as. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many cases. So there's, and that's just one very illustrative example of how people come to the table seeing each other, not as actual human beings, but rather as, uh, you know, cartoon representations of their stake, whether right. it's the fire chief or the developer or the politician or the neighbor 
or the guy who really loves the fish in the stream or whatever it is. We're all these cartoons <laughs> when, we're, yes. when we arrive yeah. at the table yeah. and it takes some time to get back to, to, un, to unpeel mm. the cartoon image and see the human below. So that, that's one part of it is the time necessary. That's why I don't do charrettes that are less than, you know, really less than five days. Mm. That's kind of a minimum amount of time for me. The, uh, the second point to make, and another slogan that we have, uh, <clears throat> slogan that I have, is the, the stages of a charrette are three, there's three basic stages. The first is talk, the second is doodle, and the third is draw. So for the talk stage, you come in, and as you point out, it's what people want the facts, people want to talk, people want to express their positions, people want to get stuff on the table. And that's all pretty verbal. Mm -hmm. You know, we support our shreds with a lot of uh, data and information that we distill from the policy base. Uh, so they have a they have a they have a brief. They don't come in cold. Mm -hmm. They have a brief about what the constraints are and what the opportunities are, which is a very elaborate process on our part. It takes months to distill all that stuff down into a brief. So we have a lot of facts and and, and issues on the table as well as some principles that have also been vetted through a public process. But so that, but, the, but at any rate, that's the first part. It's the talk part. Mm -hmm. And as designers, um, I'm trained as a designer and in my shreds, I also have a group of other facilitators at the table who are also good designers and who can both talk and draw at the same time, which is a pretty rare skill, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, Left brain, right brain or something like yeah, this, right? Yeah, you have to do both. Same time. Yeah, it's really, it's like, yeah, rubbing your stomach and uh, I <laughs> yeah. you know. Like you should put that you should put things. that on the, you know, the the job postings, right? Must be able yeah. to rub tummy and pat head. Tummy and head and pat head at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I wanna be in those I wanna see that interview panel. That that would be <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Let's see you do that. Question one. But uh but the second stage is uh, so talk is the first stage. Doodle is the second stage. So that's just, that's when you get mm. sort of past this thing where you know you get people are no longer stakeholders or team members, and somewhere simultaneously with that, you're able to say to people around the table things like the facilitator can say, "Oh, do you mean like this?" And uh, and you have something physical to draw with, and you have a map or mm -hmm. something that you're drawing on. And that's real, that represents the real place. This is assuming a physical design charrette, which all mine are. And uh, on that map with a piece of trace paper on top of it, you start to say things like, do you mean like this? And mm -hmm. the facilitator will make a mark and the person, and then ask the facilitator, is that what you mean? And then the person might say no. And the uh, smart facilitator at that point will say, well, you show me and hand them the hand them the pen or the, the marker. Mm -hmm. Say, where do you think it ought to be? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's when you're, this is the critical point, psychologically super important, because that's the point at which you can make everybody in the room not just a participant, but also a designer. Mm -hmm. One of our principles is that everybody designs. So it's very important for facilitators to be able to break the barrier that suggests that only the trained designers can design. Everybody has to design, and if you fail in this uh, mission of making everybody a designer, there's going to be a distance between the stakeholders and the designers at the end of it. So their commitment to it will will only be partial. Hmm. You really have to 
legitimately inculcate in them the feeling through their experience that they are designers. So that's when the pen, that's why it's critical that you hand the pen over mm. to them and say, "Do you mean here?" And then everybody has to scribble on that. And it's really an ugly drawing, and it's the most beautiful drawing in the whole charrette process because it's the mark of that participation. Yes. And, and the, the, the uglier it is, the better. It's the mark of uh, seeing, you know, a citizen or a stakeholder um, kind of achieve political efficacy. Right. Or personal efficacy. So, you know, they right. they suddenly have that feeling of... They're in charge. Being in charge, having a sense of worth within the community around the problem that everybody's trying around to solve. Around the problem. And there's a, there's a collaborative and, and group uh, process that, that came to the solution that everybody's invested in it. And you really don't want to see people hang back in a second row at that stage of the shred and the doodle. Stage. The dual stage is the most critical part of this shit because you really good mm. facilitator has to make sure the pen is handed over, but they also have to make sure there's nobody in the second row. Second row is is a bit of a metaphor. Sometimes there literally is somebody who's hanging back or a group of people who are disinclined to put their shoulders forward onto the table. Mm-hmm. So good facilitation means you have to be sensitive to when that's happening and and uh, find a way to pull that person forward towards the table and get them to mark <clears throat> mark the plan figuratively or actually uh, hmm. as well. Uh, it it has to happen. You have to get you have to get one hundred percent group participation and, and respect for each other too. And do you have any um any kind of words of advice around that element? Because when you're working with groups that are diverse, right? You know they're diverse in terms of their their stakes that they're that they hold and their interests, right? But then they're yeah. also diverse in terms of their the degree to which they're comfortable, I guess, working in groups. You know, some mm-hmm. people are very extroverted and they can kind of they can come in and they they're they're fine with that kind of work, right? Whereas other people they they they're more introverted and they might distance themselves more from the process, even though they have a ton to add. Well, two things to say about that. One is it takes good facilitation. Facilitation is, is really crucial. And mm-hmm. what, I, what I find in charrettes, the hardest thing in charrettes is to get good facilitation. But because I've been doing it for almost 30 years, I have people in this region and across North America that I can call on. They're very specialized people that are good facilitators that can both. Not only can they both talk and draw at the same time, but they, they, they're also not assholes. They're, you know, they're mm-hmm. tremendous. These people are tremendously talented architects and landscape architects. And particularly, if I might, if I may be so bold amongst architects, if you can find a tremendously talented architect who's not arrogant, that's, that's as rare. <laughs> that's as rare as hen's teeth. You know, that's extremely rare. Mm-hmm. So it's a very narrow band of individuals who are, can, can both talk and draw and are respectful and are not arrogant and who won't run away with the design because, Oh, I can just do this. I've done a million of these. Yeah. I've done a million of these things. Right. You know, that's, that's, that's the most typical flaw of uh, design charrettes that I've, that I've observed. And it's, and it's the typical flaw because it's really hard to avoid to get the right facilitators in the room is really, really, really hard. Well, it's that that's moment. Point number one. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. You had another, I point. had the yeah. second point. 
Yeah, the second point is, uh, in terms of uh, getting people, so that's the facilitator side. The stakeholder side is another question. Mm-hmm. To get the right people at the table is also a crucial part of the design, of the charrette design process. Um, it's, and this, this part is not well understood by people I might call amateurs in the game. The selection of who's at the table has two parts. One, the the person, you have to have the right people. So in terms of their categories, so the way I described that one is you have to have everybody at the table, a representative of any entity at the table, those entities, all the entities that at some point could say no. Mm-hmm. And if they're not at the table and later on you have to go to that entity, they're going to say no, pretty much assured. Because mm-hmm. they weren't at the table, and this is their opportunity to say no. So you have to think through whether it's a neighborhood design or whatever it is. Who in the future would be the one who's out there that could say no to this plan, and they have to come in. So that develops the list of necessary stakeholders. Hmm. And then the, the then the second part of that process is okay. Who amongst that group is a uh, the most powerful person in that stakeholder group who has the respect. Of the of their community, or uh, is uh, by virtue of their status as a, whatever it is, the deputy fire chief or the chief of police or the head of the environmental protection agency or or uh, the owner of the company that's going to develop the land, you know, mm-hmm. as high up as you can go, so that their opinion won't be thwarted by their boss when they uh, come in later and say, well, boss, this is what we decided at the charrette. And the boss says, well, I wasn't there, so so Mm -hmm. how with that? So you have to have, uh, you have to have people high up on the food chain. That's really hard to do because they're usually people who don't have a week to spare. And unless they feel this is very vital to them, uh, they're not going to do it. So that's a very difficult thing to do, but that's your objective. Mm. And those people have to be people that, there's a consensus who are generally easy to work with or who can be worked with. And that's politically challenging for a shred organizer to be in a position of saying, you know, somebody in the city says, okay, well, here's a guy at, in engineering and you have to say, well, is he a jerk? No. I mean, that's, you're not mm-hmm. in a good position as a consultant to be able to say that. So you have to be rather delicate and say, mm. Okay, that's good. That he, by virtue of position, that sounds good. And does he work? Has he worked extensively with the public? And uh, what has been uh, the results of that? And think questions like that. Mm-hmm. The setting up the table is, in short, very uh, a very important part of the process as well. Yeah. Setting up the game. Yeah, it's. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Ezio Manzini, uh, but he has a he's he's a kind of social innovation um, Italian guy who who his his whole backgrounds in design and uh in his book that i have design when everybody designs he calls uh he calls this process designing coalitions and he says it's kind of one of the most important elements of this of kind of co-design exercises right where you yeah you know you actually spend a lot of time in the in the front end planning stage for this sort of thing, That's right. getting all That's the right. right pieces together and thinking about who needs to be in the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, that's, yeah, we spend. Uh, that's exactly right. And we spend. I, I tell people who want to do these shreds, and I don't do them anymore because they're a young man's game. Quite frankly, they're exhausted. <laughs> but we spend. Uh, you know, we spend nine months or a year on a shred. You only get one week at the table, but mm. the lead up to it can be uh, quite long. Wow. It's like an iceberg. An iceberg only a, only a small part of it shows up hmm. above the surface of the water. There's tons of time putting together the coalition, assembling the database. You know, I've skipped over that part with only one reference, but we spend a lot of time uh, distilling what we call the policy pile down into a few pages. Any any urban area that we work with has a ton of. Uh, of policy constraints, engineering constraints, mm-hmm. legal constraints that uh, influence what happens on the site. You can't ignore that. Mm-hmm. If you just go in with, you know, a blank page charrette, blue sky thing, that's the other recipe for failure for charrettes is to just go in with no prep at all and just mm-hmm. say, oh, what what would we love to do here on this site? And it's all, you know, like, you know... <clears throat> Nothing makes sense at the end of it. It's all very nice and utopia, but, but it's it, not going to get built. It doesn't it's just fit not going to happen. Yeah, because it doesn't fit code. It doesn't fit the economic constraint. It doesn't fit with uh, you know things like the uh, the infrastructure plan for the city. A million different things mm-hmm. uh, it has to fit into. So and yet you don't want to stifle creativity. So the, <clears throat> the 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 sweet spot in that is to boil down all that all those policy and economic and political constraints. Uh, into a into a into a design brief into a digestible set of instructions or uh, grounding principles or constraints mm-hmm. or design objectives and that takes a long time and that's that has to be negotiated at a time mm. and that's uh, a big part of it so we do all, most of our work is before the charrette weeks uh, you know the charrette week is the most intense part of it. And then there's a bunch of cleanup and distribution after, mm. but most of the, most of the real work in terms of staff hours is the upfront. Interesting, setting out the constraints and yeah, identifying. Right, and we have to meet. We have to meet a couple times with the stakeholders. Our first meetings with the stakeholders is not at the charrette. It's at the at these preliminary meetings where we present the the results of our of our efforts to distill down the policy pile into a reasonably sized design brief and technical documents that support that design brief. And very, very importantly, here are, the, here are the six, seven, eight fundamental principles that we all agree will be the grounding principles for this design. And these can be quite specific uh, principles sometimes, in fact, quite measurable in some cases. Like, for example, a principle that is usually very common in our shrits is something like maintain a five-minute walking distance to commercial services and transit. Mm. That's very that's very very influential in terms of the geometry of a final uh, of a final product mm-hmm. because that means the 400 meter distance between any maximum distance between any house and a commercial service and a uh, and a transit stop uh, that's very determinant in terms of how a place will look. Another is a principle about you know for example. Uh, uh, Houses shall be affordable to uh, uh, <clears throat> to a range of incomes, you know, between thirty percent and eighty percent of of average family mean. So that 
that ends up being very informative in terms of what size houses there will be, how mm-hmm. many there have to be on a piece of land and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. whether whether you'll be predominantly in a apartment product or a detached product or that kind of thing. This is just by way of illustrating how principles can be very important. Mm-hmm. Interesting that in themselves create additional constraints. And it's funny, people right. people think like, oh, well, I think on a first glance, they would say, oh, there's so many constraints within having to, you know, follow follow code, follow all these legal requirements, zone your requirements, and then now you're adding principles on top, and where's the creativity in this? How are we going to do But it's almost like, no, that's, you. you need those constraints, and you also need a deadline too, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. that kind of energizes the whole process that people are working that's towards right. to be able to actually create together, right. you know? Yeah, so, you know, any, any anything in the world, I mean, this is an interesting point about constraint. Anything in the world is fully constrained. I mean, baseball has got a million constraints. Golf, any game you play has a million constraints. Money is a constraint in mm-hmm. your life, so you have to be creative about how to deal with that. You know, the decisions about what your future will be is heavily constrained by the probabilities or possibilities. You know, any, anything without constraints is actually not life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of uh, entropy or something. Yeah, and I'm not sure if you're going to be able to include this following quote in your in your, uh, in your uh, in your release, but there was an architect who once said... Uh, um, one of the, what was his name? Charles Jenks, I said. Charles Jenks, I, I think, back in, the, back in the day, back in the 80s, had a saying when, when people were rediscovering the value of constraints in architecture during the postmodernist period. His, his saying was, the more the constraints, the better the sex. <laughs> we can keep that. That one's good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You keep it up to you. Okay. Um, so one one quick question on the charrette stuff, and then we can move on to the um, the kind of rapid round questions because uh, we surprisingly we've we've already been talking for almost an hour, um, which is great. I think you know that's that's always uh, that's always a good sign, right? Because the material is so fascinating. Um, so you know, just just from the perspective maybe of yourself back in your kind of community activism days in your 20s and others who might be in that space now. Um, can can a design charade happen without uh, sort of a powerful directive to make it so? Uh, like, does a design charade, oh, is it always tied to some sort of trigger that comes from the development community or from the city uh, or, or is it sometimes, in your experience, have you seen it sometimes emerge at the grassroots level? Well, I think the desire for a charrette, and I'm going to say this to encourage rather than discourage people who are in their 20s, I think the desire for a charrette can emerge from the grassroots. And, uh, and then that can be the proposal that the grassroots puts forward with the right amount of pressure or encouragement to uh, city officials or, you know, city developer consortiums and so forth. Uh, that can be productive rather than being uh, in a position of being negative, of being negative against something, which is usually what uh, activist groups end up 
in the position, rightly or wrongly, mm-hmm. of doing. Uh, I would suggest that if you find yourself in a position of uh, being um, concerned or anxious about some something occurring in an urban landscape or within your region that you care about, that uh, opposition is a good thing, but uh, also uh, maybe simultaneously offering uh, a collaborative process with whereby you join the stakeholders on the other side of the table to try to come up with a both and solution hmm. that satisfies what their legitimate uh, desires are, whether they're profit or providing housing or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and uh, does that in a way that satisfies other social or environmental concerns at the same time, and come up with something, something better. As we've said before in an earlier part of this, you know, a lot of the problems confronted by us in this complicated world are wicked problems without mm-hmm. one, without one solution. So, uh, I think the charrette offers opportunities for uh, interest groups, uh, young people who want to have influence mm-hmm. to uh, to provide something positive. Where you know, in ten or fifteen years, they can go by, go back, and say. Uh, I built this or this looks this way because of, you know, what I or what we did. Mm -hmm. It's satisfying to say we stopped this such and such bad thing, this old growth forest from being destroyed. But it's also in my life been very, very satisfying to say here's a place that uh, through my facilitation looks a certain way that it wouldn't look otherwise Mm -hmm. and it's better and it's a better place. It worked. And not only did we save the fish, but we provided housing that's uh, walkable, and all these other good things happened. So that would be that would be an up. That's that's an upside comment. However, I have to also admit that it's been a bit of a disappointment in my life that doing these design charrettes hasn't been automatically been taken up by every city in you know Canada and North America as a routine part of doing urban development. I think they work so well. Mm-hmm. that it should be used for every project in every neighborhood. We should always do these every single time. Mm-hmm. And as of yet, we don't. So that's that's uh, disappointing to me. We don't because... Uh, uh, we don't because they're... Uh, they're they take a paradigm shift, I think, in the way that we approach a lot of problems. So mm. we're still, unfortunately despite my best efforts and the best efforts of people like me, uh, using, using, uh, re- resorting far too often to linear methodologies that uh, mm. don't produce the best solution and uh, leave people somehow unsatisfied at the end of the day. So I think there's still a lot of work to do in changing our paradigm. I'm not saying that design charrettes are the only solution, but there's probably a set of de- solutions that includes design charrettes that are holistic mm-hmm. and integrative and collaborative uh, that should be uh, that should be in the context of the paradigm shift become much more common uh, in fact you know in fact routine ways of, uh, of of attacking these kind of problems particularly problems of city building yeah my um my previous interview with uh, with Peter McLeod from mass LBP which was a few episodes ago, he outlined just exactly that another another kind of pattern that you can use, um, which yeah. is the civic lottery and civic reference panel approach, 
to, yeah. um, you know, developing public judgment around wicked problems. And I do think that he, he also mentioned one funny thing in our conversation, which was that, um, you know, their, their goal as an organization is something very, very plain and boring. <laughs> they, they just want their process to become kind of the, the norm, like the, just what it, you know, just fade into the background, so to speak of how, how government, you know, deals with complex problems. They, you know, put out a, a, a call for people almost like a, like jury duty, random selection brings these people together. You educate them around the issue using different stakeholders and they, they develop a, they develop a, solu- yeah, like a, a series like of a, recommendations and then, you know, yeah. and it's the same with the design charrettes. Uh, you know, I asked you earlier in our conversation and you, you're kind of answering it now, like when would this, when, when do we use this? When is appropriate? And yeah. you're right. It's absolutely any kind of choice around development. This is appropriate for, right? Because right. I think what, I think what it does is it, it really flushes out, um, the pattern language in, in the city and all the stakeholders that are within it. Right. We we all have these sensibilities and these, these interests and these tastes in how we want our community to look and feel, but we're not like, if there's no process there to capture that and work through it in a way that's collaborative and not conflictual, then we're, we're just going to kind of keep popping up these dense, residential towers you right. know that uh yeah. that, you know right. they might be solving one part of the problem they're an answer to right. one of the multivariant problems but right. they're not an answer to that whole right. that whole thing so i'm with and you hooking on that. hooking those hooking those tower pods together with a very expensive subway i might add yeah, yeah. i know <laughs> yeah. i'd never thought of it that way but yeah that's exactly it right uh, yeah. It's very simple-minded. It's very simple-minded, yeah. It's point A, point yeah. B, and it's not about other things like third space, right? Where you're, no, These no, non-work no. and non-home spaces yeah. where people gather kind of... No, um, it's not looking at the region and the city as an organism, as an organic entity that, you know, is profoundly... is an organism that's profoundly cultural as well as simply economic or simply physical, you mm-hmm. know? So... Yeah, yeah. To make these things, to come back to the point, to make these things routine would be great, would be, you know, fantastic. Because if you're going to deal with a wicked problem or allow yourself to think of the city as immensely complex organism of, of incredible sensitivity, but incredible possibilities for organic growth, then it does. It requires a different paradigm, a different way of thinking. And our institutions have built up basically since the Renaissance, you know, and modern governments were first conceptualized mm-hmm. as profoundly linear as, you know, A follows B follows C. And, uh, you know, we shouldn't feel too bad about how difficult it is shifting away from that paradigm because it has built up over what is now 1,500 years uh, of what, you know, in the West we consider to be success. Mm-hmm. But the limits of the planet are 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 revealing to us the limits of this methodology. Yes. And that's, that's, that's the bottom line here. The planet is dying as a consequence of all of our success with these limited, these linear methodologies. Mm-hmm. The planet is dying. You know, our cars are beautiful, but the planet is almost dead. 
So we, uh, it's a huge paradigm shift that's required, and I feel sorry for people in their 20s. But what I say to my students who are in their 20s, I say, but this is the period of the planet's life that's going to be incredibly crucial for you, and you have tremendous opportunities to be engaged with the most wicked of all problems of all time. And it's going to be in one hopeful thing I say to them, which I can repeat to you, is that I say to them, you know, it's probably going to be three or 400,000 people on the planet that are going to participate in, in the project of saving the planet. And you can be easily one of those half a million people. Now, that could be you. And I hope you succeed. If you don't succeed, you tried. I really hope you succeed. But I can't imagine a more vibrant, meaningful life than to be one of that huge global collaborative trying to fix this problem. Mm-hmm. Amen. So, yep. I, you know, I think I think this this has been a this has been a great conversation. And um, and if I'm missing anything, was there another area that you wanted to also kind of talk about in your work? Because we did focus quite heavily on the design charade element, but it is so, I think, central to a lot of what you've done. No, yeah. I mean, we could have a whole other conversation on different topics, but yeah, that, that this has been the core of what I've done, and uh, I feel good about leaving it at that. Okay. So um, just... Just a few rapid round questions here then to close us out. Um, and uh, and so this one will kind of follow on from where you left us with that, with that last uh, answer slash reflection. Um, mm-hmm. So for anyone who's on the fence about kind of jumping into this field and, and doing design charades, trying to design charade out, what would you tell them? Well, I tell them to try to do it. It's very gratifying. It's been gratifying for me to, to like, for example, go to East Clayton and walk around and be in a place that I feel like I had influenced. And not because I'm arrogant. It's my creation. What I find the most interesting about it is how it's uh, not that I created it, but that I facilitated it, that I helped it happen. Mm-hmm. I helped make something happen that wanted to happen. And by virtue of the fact that the stakeholders all agreed that it wanted to happen and my facilitation brought them to that point, that's way more, that's way more uh, satisfying to me than the things I've actually built that were just my design in my life. It's way more gratifying. So that kind of facilitating a creation in the world that's a positive one, I think it's tremendous. It's just a tremendous feeling. So they should pursue that. Mm. Uh, second point is that there's, there's other ways to do it, but I think the essential way that the charrette, uh, that the charrette um, exemplifies is the idea of uh, holistic uh, and collaborative and uh, cognizant of the way humans uh, behave in collaborative groups and uh, understanding the value of facilitation and understanding that uh, uh, problems and issues are both enormously complex, but also have the capacity of understood holistically of unleashing great creative opportunities for city building. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's, I think charrettes are the best 
one of the best ways to do that, but I, I don't want to claim that it's the only way. I want people to think that there's other ways to do that. And the, uh, the fundamental core is not the idea of a charrette, but it's the idea of uh, collaborative and uh, understanding that uh, there are processes that can deal with these wicked problems. They may not come up with perfect solutions, but they they will come up with good solutions. And I like this idea of coming up with a good solution rather than a perfect solution. I like that a lot mm -hmm. because perfection is analytically determined. You know, in, in a mathematical equation, it's either right or it's wrong. So it's mm -hmm. either perfect or it's completely imperfect. But a good solution is a moral quality rather than a, than a factual yes or no. Mm -hmm. Uh, a good solution is something that's normatively understood. It's it's understood by a group of people uh, making an assessment based on their entire cognitive functions. Yes, that's good versus this other thing that's bad. That's uh, a uh, conclusion that's dependent largely on intuition, which is a which is a capacity of holistic understanding in the human mind rather than a rational understanding. It's uh, much more complex. Uh, the idea of something being good versus bad is a much more complex mm -hmm. determination and a better one, speaking again normatively, mm -hmm. in many cases than the perfect one that we have found might be perfect within its narrow constraint, but leads to unanticipated uh, uh, consequences. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it's yeah. It I like that that good bad is re it's a question of intuition and judgment and kind of how right. do you how do you develop collective intuition or collective judgment and that's yeah that's a very um I think that is a very gratifying thing to uh, yeah. to be a part and of I, and then see at the end of the day. Yeah, <clears throat> why why I can't. Uh... Well, I can't do these anymore because they're so exhausting. I'm <laughs> psychically not able to do them anymore, but they are so intense. And one of the intense parts of the whole thing is as a facilitator, you become kind of involved and in a way responsible for the, the, the epiphanies that, and this might seem extreme, but it's okay. I'm old enough to say this stuff anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the, epif the epiphanies that are experienced by the people who are participants in the charrette, mm -hmm. I can't tell you the number of times that at the end of the charrette, you know, like after the presentation or a few days later or a week later or a month later, participants come up to me and say, that was incredible. That changed my life. I can't. I walked into that having no idea what that was going to be like or what it was going to mean to me. And, you know, I've, I've done scores of these, and this thing has happened to me so many times. I'm like, you know, what do you say? I, you know, I, I'm kind of like, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah. Yep, I know, yeah, I know. Yeah. Yep, <laughs> there was this miracle, I know. Happens every time. Well, so I'll see ya. You know what? <laughs> what do you? <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. So it's a good. But it feeling. is. It's astonishing, but it's you know it's powerful. And I'm like after a while, I'm like somebody else needs to do this besides me. <laughs> okay, so um, 
here, here's another one here. So what, what book has most influenced you and your approach to your work? Jane Jacobs, for sure. Jane Jacobs, Death and Life of the Great American City. Why I like this book for your listeners is not just because it's a great book, but it's a book that talks about planning without a single statistic in it, mm. without a single picture, mm-hmm. just word pictures. And it speaks to this issue of the, the power of uh, intuition. Because she just used her soul as an instrument and looked, and looked very carefully at the way the world was and did it and described it. So for those who are interested in uh, methodology, what it really is, is a pheno- it's a phenomenological methodology. Mm-hmm. So later on, I learned that her method, even though she probably didn't even know she had a method, was one that's well documented as a, as a phenomenology. Mm-hmm. And it's the idea of rather than using facts as a research methodology where you add up numbers, blah, 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 and do a scientific method and do tests on one variable or two or three, mm-hmm. uh, which is very, uh, which is the methodology we most often teach as science. Uh, this one, this one, rather than limit down to measurable, a single measurable variable opens the researcher up to unlimited variables. And the instrument for that is the human soul, really, not to sound too highfalutin. But our, if you feel more comfortable talking about it in, uh, in less loaded terms, using human intuition mm-hmm. as the instrument uh, for understanding. So the revealed understanding through the instrument of your intuition is valid, even though it doesn't, it's not something that's provable mm-hmm. using experimental methodologies. All right. Anyway, that's the methodological side of what she did. But back to the point, the point is she just saw and revealed uh, with an acute understanding of urban phenomenon in a way that during the sixties contradicted everything that was being taught in planning and architecture schools about what the, how the city operated. She, she contradicted this very simplistic notion that the city is a machine mm-hmm. uh, by revealing its underlying incredibly complicated uh, mechanisms, human mechanisms, organic mechanisms that were not mechanical at all, that depended on the way humans behaved in situ in mm-hmm. association with each other in highly complicated but beautiful ways, beautifully described. So that's that's the moment in my life that kind of turned my head around entirely. And when did you read it? I read it when I was probably 22, 23. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Cool. And it's still, still a classic that pretty much everybody has to be exposed to that's in planning for sure and, mm-hmm. and in urban design for sure. Yeah, it's great. It's a great book. Great book. Okay, so one one more here. Um, tell me about an important failure you've had in your life and in your work. Uh, well, I think I could have written more. I wish I'd written more. Writing's hard. If I have a if it's a, if it's a professional failure, we're talking about a professional not a failure so much as a discomfort. Hmm. I would say I wish I'd written more. Mm-hmm. I've written a lot, but I haven't written as much as I think I could have. And uh, I 
want to write another book. I've got one more book in me, so maybe that'll correct itself. But Rao, for your listeners, writing is really hard. Writing is a real confrontation with yourself and your own your own limitations. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to sit down and start something that you expect to be a couple hundred pages, and to and to have enough self confidence that you think at the end of this year long or two or three year long effort, anyone will feel like reading it. Very hard to get started and to maintain. Maintain that. I've written a, a number of books and a couple of uh, books that are widely read. So I have had some success in this, but I wish I had more success. And to your listeners, I just think it's really, really hard for me and for anybody else to do it. And what's that? So, what's that next book that you have in you? Uh, it's a book about cities, and uh, the last book I did was the Seven Rules for Sustainable Communities, mm-hmm. which in effect distilled a lot of what I learned doing charrettes down into a kind of a bite-sized piece. Mm -hmm. But the principles that are very simple for uh, sustainable communities in that book are about essentially North American cities. So the launching pad for that was to try to do the next one, which was similar but worked at the global scale, was really trying to essentialize what makes a sustainable city. Mm. Uh, not just here in North America, but whether you're looking at South America or India or China mm-hmm. uh, with their very different cultures and histories, what things can you say in terms of uh, sustainability principles? And uh, to make a long story short and to conclude it, the title of it is called Flat City. Mm-hmm. And it's an idea about cities that is, I think, rooted in Jane Jacobs's work where she talks about the organic complexity of neighborhoods. Mm-hmm and how they behave and how they respond, which is quite antithetical to the big city thinking Mm -hmm. of the time and the big city thinking that we still have. That's why I get so curious about the Broadway subway, because I think that's our local example of, uh, of thinking of the city wrongly as, uh, as essentially a big machine when in effect, it's actually this much more complicated organism that operates at the cellular level and at the neighborhood level, much more, importantly than at the machine level or the regional level. So Flat City, as the name implies, is sort of um, much more appreciative of the things that go on at the district scale and at the granular cellular level Hmm. of cities and neighborhoods than, you know, than our thinking, which seems to be dominated by, you know, high-rise projects here, there, and everywhere and hooking them together with a subway and and so forth. I think that's a radical oversimplification of the way cities operate. So that's what that next book is trying to trying to describe. Cool. I look forward to reading that. Yeah, I think well, that. Well, you know, if 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 you can confront the inner demons and produce it, <laughs> <laughs> it's at least a year away. So we'll see. Check back in a year and see if I've gotten any progress. Okay. Okay. Well, um, Patrick, this has been uh, this has been a great conversation. Um, and I hope we'll have other opportunities in the future to talk again, uh, you know, whether it's for the podcast or not. Um, uh, so thank you. Uh, sure. thank you so much for your time and, uh, and your experience and, and your stories. Uh, sure. it's, uh, it's been a real pleasure and, um, yeah, and we'll, you know, we'll just uh, we'll keep on keeping on and and keep trying to make 
the design charade and all these other great approaches to collaborative living and working together. Um, you know, just like, uh, just like porridge and oatmeal, just this plain thing that's just there. That'd be great. Yeah. That'd be great. Okay, Stefan, it's been great talking to you. You do a great interview, so I hope to see you again soon. Okay. Thanks, Patrick. Sure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Patrick chairs the Master of Urban Design program at the University of British Columbia. He started his academic career in 1985 at the University of Minnesota before moving to the University of BC in 1992. After acting as the director of the Landscape Architecture Program, he became the James Taylor Chair in Landscape and Livable Environments. And in that capacity, he has worked to advance sustainable urban design in scores of jurisdictions in the US, Canada, and Australia. Patrick has also led the Sustainability by Design project by the Design Center for Sustainability. You can find the resources mentioned during this episode at togetherworking.com slash the Working Together podcast, all one word. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast for more in-depth conversations with innovative thinkers, makers, and doers sure to inspire you and help you make an impact in your world. And don't forget to rate and review so that I can continue to bring you the social innovation goods. Finally, if you'd like to receive the weekly Working Together Review newsletter where I share interesting finds and actionable insights about teamwork, facilitation skills, social innovation, cooperative behavioral economic strategy, political theory, and a whole bunch of other stuff, you can sign up at togetherworking.com.